Welcome to the podcast of the Journal of Applied Ecology, where we put applied ecology into practice. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming to our workshop on how best can international journals support applied ecologists in emerging economies. Um, this is organised by EJ, mostly, and myself. Um, so why are we holding this workshop? We all know that emerging economies, the famous BRICS of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, but also many countries as well, are biodiversity rich. We've heard a lot about that in various talks in this meeting. And they also hold very high levels of endemism. At the same time, much of that biodiversity is threatened by the, um, the high levels of industrial development, urbanization, and agricultural expansion is actually driving. It's the reason why these economies are emerging economies and not developing economies. Um, as a result, the emerging economies, if you look at them, they often feature very highly on kind of global prioritization exercises, hotspots, uh, important bird areas, mega diversity countries, etc. As a result, there's an acute and uh, urgent need for influential and effective applied ecology in these countries um, to provide the evidence base for the effective environmental policies. Yet, if you pick almost any of the international journals up on conservation or, or applied ecology, you'll see that most of the articles are uh, dominated by authors from either Europe, America, or rich English-speaking countries. Uh, the proportion of articles from uh, developing countries and emerging economies is, is relatively small still, and that's a problem, because it, we haven't got the evidence base. The journals aren't providing that kind of robust evidence base for... Um, for uh, effective conservation planning in, in these countries. So, ah, it's multitasking, too hard. <laughs> so I'll be chairing the session. Um, EJ will be collating our thoughts and ideas as we go on, online, and also we're being recorded. So when we do speak, ask questions, if we need to speak into this microphone or the one in the corridor. Um, uh, and we have an expert panel with us today. So if I can move over, I'll move over this way, so the cord. <laughs> Um, so, we have Martin Fisher, who's the editor of Oryx, and also got a lot of experience of working in Brazil. Um, Phil McGowan, who's the editor of International Journal of Galliforms Conservation, and also extensive knowledge of working in China. Liz Ferguson from Wiley, representing the publishers. And Joyce Ferreira, who is from Brazil, Embrapa, who is going to be bravely representing all authors from emerging economies. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, she's not alone in that because many of the audience, I hope, can contribute on that note. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, Navinda Singh from India couldn't make it because of visa issues, and uh, that's probably one of the issues that could be <laughs> probably uh, brought up later, the difficulty for traveling for many people from these countries. Um, so I've asked the panel to prepare a short five-minute presentation to kick off with, um, and I think we'd like to kick off with the, the author's perspective first, with Joycey and then the, the editors, and finally the publishers in that order. Um, so on that note, Joycey, do you want to start with your talk? Um, first of all, I would like to thank the editors of Journal of Applied Ecology for the invitation to participate in this very relevant workshop. Uh, I would draw my thoughts here from my own experience. Uh, I mean, a researcher originated from and working in one of the most disadvantaged regions of Brazil. And also from discussions with colleagues at different stages of the the, their career uh, in different parts of the country. I mean, I sent to a group of uh, 
colleagues an email uh, saying about telling them about the workshop and asking for contributions because uh, it's very important to say that here because we are not talking about just Brazil but there are different Brazis. Uh, the reality in the country is really different as you can see uh, on this graph we have an enormous social inequity in Brazil, and this social inequity is reflected on, on science as well. Uh, you can see, for example, uh, in terms of number of, uh, I think this is the PhD programs, uh, post-graduation programs, sorry. You can see uh, here that the North region represents uh, in 1998 only one point uh, something, uh, and today, two, in 2008, 2.7. Uh, if you compare, for example, with south, the southeast region, where it represents like uh, 60%, uh, it represented in uh, it represented in 2000. Uh, it represents in 2008. And another figure to illustrate that is that just the University of São Paulo uh, alone is responsible for 15% of publications in Brazil. And if we sum up the just four universities in Southeast, just São Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, they are responsible for like more than 30% of publications in Brazil. To give you some more examples, you can see the green area, the north region, uh, represents like 45%, 45% in terms of area of the country. The population is like 8%, almost 20 million people. GDP, 8%. But even though we have those enormous uh, figures, uh, the budget for science and technology that the region receives is only 4 5% of the country. And number of post-graduation courses is just a little bit uh, more than 4%. PhD courses, a little bit more than 3%. And only... 0.3% of courses in, uh, in Brazil, in the North region, uh, has six and seven, the highest grade in the educational system in Brazil. So I think this is really important that we are not talking about just one country, but we have a very different situation in different parts of the country, especially in the North. And talking a little bit about myself, I was graduated in the first biology class at a recently created university located in the newest state of Brazil, Tocantins State. Uh, Joss always uh, play with me that I'm the only person from Tocantins State that he ever met, really. <laughs> and uh, I'm telling you this because when I was graduated, the university had only five years old and they stayed only six years old. So I think this is really important to give you some context about this situation. And what this generates, that is important to contextualize, I'm, t I'm telling you that the growth and dynamism in Brazil is really, really huge. Uh, to give more examples, and of course this, are along with the profound uh, transformation, socio-economic transformation in Brazil, uh, the first post-graduation course in ecology was created as recently as in 1976. It was the first post-graduation course uh, in Brazil. And nowadays we have 38 uh, uh, post-graduation courses in ecology, okay? I'm talking about just post-graduation uh, courses in ecology. 
So now we have 38 ecology courses, so it's like one per year. And uh, I think it's important to mention that one of the consequences of this rapid pace of course creation is that we have a really short time lag between the creation of capacity and the appointment of lecture at the universities. So we really have a high uh, demand and this is really a serious issue that we should consider. And specifically, I have some numbers to, to illustrate this as well. So we have the different regions of, uh, in Brazil, and in the first uh, column we have the number of PhDs that were graduated uh, in the period 1996 and 2008, and in the second we have the number of post-graduation programs and you can see, for example, in the northeast region, that is a really poor region as well in Brazil, we have an increase of more than 2,500% of increase in the number of uh, uh, graduated uh, people. In terms of the num number of programs, we have an increase, like in the center western, we have uh, almost 300%. Uh, so this is really, uh, happening in a, in a high, high pace. So to open the discussion, I want to briefly, I think that uh, to, to answer the questions here, I think it's very important to examine some of the factors responsible for the low contribution rate of uh, researchers from emerging economies. And I would like to emphasize specifically two types of uh, of uh, factors. We have in-country factors, uh, that means institutional limitations, and we have more specifically research limitations. And in terms of in-country limitations, we can see, for example, I think it's very important, the quality and the scope of research. So there is still lack of opportunity in many parts of the country to do a, a kind of cutting-edge research where the focus uh, end up uh, being primarily on very local and context-dependent studies. Uh, so this is normally not accepted by international journals. And of course, we have a lot of underlying calls for that. We have the problem of uh, just recent investment in higher education, uh, continued poor investment in primary and secondary. All of these are really underlying calls. And uh, we should mention as well, like uh, in the universities, the lecturers, they're really, really overloaded with classes and it's, there is a uh, uh, small time to do research itself. So this is important to consider. The second point is the lack of external incentives to publish in a high standard journal. Like we have our nationwide assessment of journal uh, quality called the CAPS. And in the CAPS, the highest score that is A1, is extreme, extremely heterogeneous category. So if you publish in a, a journal of impact, uh, like a 2.8, is the same as publishing nature. So it's really, there is no incentive to, to publish in higher incentive, uh, high standard journals. To give you an example of my institution that is uh, overspread all over Brazil, Embrapa, if I publish like three uh, what is called circular technica, directed to farmers. Uh, if I publish, if I were to publish three of these, I just have, I have the same punctuation as publishing science. So 
why I have incentive to publish in science if I can just have the same score and receive the same amount of money at the end of the month? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think resolving these two issues is dependent on local institutional arrangements and the government policies. And that is uh, a little bit beyond uh, the reach of journals. Uh, I think it's in terms of uh, public policy, our government is doing a part of uh, its homework. We have a large national, uh, nationwide scholarship uh, program called Science Without Borders. And to give you some idea, the government has distributed grants for international interchange to around 35,000 students uh, in different universities uh, all over the world. And, uh, and also, we have in Brazil like 300 uh, visit researchers. Uh, Jos is one of them that visit, and uh, is, they are aligned with uh, local institutions for a couple of years. So I think this is very important. Uh, another point that I'd like to emphasize is the major international conference that are increasingly being held in Brazil, like ATBC last year. Many of you uh, may participated there. Ornithology Congress in 2010. Those initiatives certainly improve greatly the prospect for the Brazilian size. Uh, but unfortunately, this advance that uh, we uh, uh, remark here, uh, they not always reflected in lead authorship by Brazilian scientists, since the majority number of articles are led by foreign scientists. And uh, Brazilians often have a subsidiary role, like uh, data collection or lab analysis. So I think this is very important. Uh, the increasing number of publications we have experienced, like we uh, changed from the position number 23 th uh, to number 13, in terms of number of publication. But uh, we still, most of publications are mainly led by f uh, foreign researchers. So this is not the, the reality until now. You can see here, uh, uh, the first one is a, a, a report on science uh, about the Brazilian uh, success in terms of number of publications and all the situation. But uh, later on, a letter uh, recognizing that. You can see there, many papers have Brazilian co-authors uh, in Brazilians and Amazonian researchers in particular are involved in the majority of Amazonian research projects, but they are not leading the research. So and I think it's important here uh, why uh, we, we have this, this problem. And uh, I think that the first, uh, we should explore here the research limitations that are related to this, uh, that I just uh, uh, showed you. The first problem, and uh, this is a reflection of the discussions that I had with dozens of colleagues that answered to my email. Uh, the first problem is lack of proficient in English. Uh, a number of colleagues that I have discussed have raised uh, this problem as a major point. And although this issue is increasingly resolved in the most developed part of Brazil, and we think that is uh, becoming better, but this is still a huge, huge, huge limitation. Uh, it's really a fundamental issue. And another issue related to point two is the lack of familiarity of how to structure uh, 
organize and present a paper for a high standard journal. In many cases, we can see that the research uh, per se is good, but it's just a lack of familiarity, how to structure uh, the paper uh, for a higher standard journal. So having said that, I, uh, and coming back to the main objective of this uh, workshop, I'd like to uh, put here, as I start point, to uh, explore uh, those possibilities uh, of, of what kind of things that uh, journals and publishers could do, uh, in my perspective and representing the perspective of many of my Brazilian colleagues. So the first one is to take into consideration the context uh, of where the research has been developed. developed. Uh, I'm not talking about, I'm not uh, defending here that uh, uh, the journals just uh, accept bad papers. Of course, this is not the case. But I think all this context that I had said here, I think this should be uh, taken into consideration. Uh, we have a huge, huge challenge as a big country with a huge biodiversity. And as a, I, I, sh I showed to you, uh, we have a really uh, young science, young ecology science. So this is summed up, and this becomes a really, really uh, enormous challenge because we have a mega diverse country and a young science and we had in time to accumulate uh, the knowledge necessary to do a cutting edge research. It's not always possible. And sometimes uh, the subject of the paper may be of great interest for the region uh, in regional terms, but they are not accepted as, as a novel uh, research in the most traditional uh, reviews. So I think this is a really, really important like a, a very important uh, uh, novel research in the US or UK is different from a novel research in Brazil, okay? So I think it's important to establish logistical, okay, establish logistical support to review the English, uh, if there is no uh, native English in the list, the creation of regional office, I think this is very important, organization of, of annual uh, writing workshops, I think that uh, like students could uh, just apply if they have uh, ready, uh, like a manuscript already uh, read and can uh, send and the best ones could be uh, selected to, be, to, to have help. Establishment of blind reviews, I think this is really important because some of the uh, researchers from those countries consider that there are kind of a, uh, preconceived ideas about the institution, about the country. And the last one is, uh, it's more a question than a statement really. If we, can new international journals that emphasize robustness of research rather than, than novelty, such as PLOS One or Eco Ecology and Evolution, play an important role for scientists from emerging economies. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joyce, for a very illuminating and personal talk on the issue from Brazil. So um, moving on quickly to our next speaker is um, your feet. <laughs> Martin Fisher, who's going to tell us about the perspective from Oryx. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joss, sorry. And, um, and EJ for organizing this. Um, I'll just tell you just very quickly my own background and why I'm interested in this subject. I mean, my interest comes from uh, 
um, my years of working in um, as a, an academic researcher in various universities in developing countries around the world, and then more recently as the editor of Oryx, the International Journal of Conservation, uh, which some of you may be familiar with. And the question today is, I'll just read it out to remind myself, how best can international journals support applied ecologists in emerging economies? So I thought I'd just give you quickly um, a few statistics from the journal I edit, um, Oryx. Um, and if, if I look at the, um, the number of articles that we've received um, since about 2010 and look at the, which were the top 10 submitting countries in terms of articles that we received, um, three of the, um, emerging, the big e emerging economy countries are in those top 10 um, after they come in actually. For your interest, they come in third, fourth and fifth, India, Brazil and China. So we're receiving a lot of papers from the three, those three emerging economy countries, but very few from Russia. And we also have in the, that top 10, um, the top 10 submitting countries to what I think we could call them developing countries for today, um, Mexico and Argentina. And the other countries are, the, um, are countries we'd regard as more developed or Western countries. So that's just to give you some idea that um, we're receiving a lot of articles from emerging economy and um, developing countries. I thought perhaps in trying to answer the question that's on the table today, I could give you a quick list of the things that we are doing um, um, with Oryx, the International Journal of Conservation, which is published by Fauna and Flora International, which is a, a conservation NGO. Um, so in no particular order, these are the things we've been trying to do to help um, international journals, or our journal in particular, support authors in emerging economy countries and developing countries as well. But also, I think, people who are, um, for whom English is not their first language. And here, in no particular order, um, we have a website, oryxthejournal.org, which does a little bit of, um, provides some resources and does a little bit of hand-holding, so to speak, to help first-time authors get over that hurdle of um, submitting articles. Um, we will consider articles that, um, uh, shall we say, the English is not as good as we would like it to be. As long as the science is sound, we will look at articles which still need a lot of work with the English. Um, the journal employs me as a full-time editor, which is un a little bit unusual. Most journals have a, a part-time academic editor who receives maybe a small amount of money each year for spending a few hours on the journal each week. But I work full-time, which enables me to devote more of my attention to trying to help authors wherever they are. Um, we do a lot of, I think I can call it um, uh, sympathetic copy editing, which means that we do this in-house. We don't when we receive an article, if it needs a lot of work with the English language, we don't send it to a freelance copy editor, we do it ourselves as a team of sort of applied ecologists trying to help people get their work into print. Um, something we've become a little bit known for in the last few years, we run um, writing workshops helping um, people early on in their career and mid-career knock their articles into shape so that they can submit them to either Oryx or to other journals. And these are five-day writing workshops in which um, uh, the participants arrive with their data on Monday and by Friday, if all goes to plan, they'll have an article 
ready to submit to a journal. I mean, you're looking askance. And everybody looked askance when I said this could be done, but I, it can be done, and we, we've shown it. Okay, so we, these workshops are for 15 or 16 people, and um, so far we've run them in um, Brazil, India, Cambodia, um, Colombia, Philippines, Kenya, and I think we have Indonesia coming up soon. And these workshops have all so far been run with the, uh, with the Conservation Leadership Program, although we have plans to open it up as well. Other things that we do, um, we try and constitute the editorial board of the journal so that it includes um, some leading scientists from developing countries and emerging economy countries, plus people from developed countries who are, are sympathetic to our cause, so to speak, of trying to help people get their work into print. Um, to try and work, I think Phil will talk a little bit about up the journal he perhaps is working with, um, but as part of my work in trying to help people get their work into print, I work with some other journals as well, more regional journals, um, such as the Cambodian Journal of Natural History and the Journal of Threatened Taxa, which is based in India, trying to help other journals um, do similar things. And... Um, Those, uh, that I think is um, the main list of the things that we do. And I think our philosophy is encapsulated by the idea that we don't really regard uh, the job of the journal as starting when we receive a paper and as finishing when we either publish a paper or reject it. We feel that we can reach out to authors before they send us work and also we can wherever possible we can mentor people through the final processes and afterwards as well and help them perhaps if, um, get their work into other journals not just into oryx okay and i think with all those little things that we do none of them are really big things except perhaps having a full-time editor and running the writing workshops which are slightly more major things but in combination all of these things means that we um, I think word has got around, so to speak, and we receive um, more submissions from developing country and emerging economy countries than from developed countries. And we've, uh, I think we've received submissions from, I think, 95 countries in the last three or four years. Okay? And something like 40% of the first authors of the articles we publish um, are people based in and native on emerging economy and developed countries. And if you include second authors and third authors and so on, the number is 60 to 70% in general since about 2010. So those, that's the combination of all those little things that we do um, enables, has, has enabled us to help um, uh, these people around the world get their work um, into print in Oryx and occasionally into other journals as well. Um, but it's still not, it's still not quite enough. Um, we know that the demand for writing workshops that we offer is great, and we could probably offer a writing workshop once a week um, and just carry on all year round, and, and we would never, ever, um, you know, finish, because we do know the demand is, is great. Um, as an editor, what I would like to do is, what I'm trying to do, some, uh, and EJ and I have been talking about this for a while, is to encourage other editors to 
take on the idea that a journal's responsibility starts before you receive an article and doesn't finish when you publish it or reject it. That as editors and as journals, we have responsibilities that go beyond just editing the journal. And that's um, a message we'd like to try and get across to, um, to other editors as well for applied ecology, ecology and conservation journals. And the other message I'd like to get across is that although uh, Joyce to some extent has painted perhaps a bleak picture about from an author's point of view about the difficulties of getting your work into print, but I'd just like to say that, I mean, there is, there is hope. There are some journals that are going out of their way, I think. The Journal of Applied Ecology is one, and I believe Oryx is another, going out of their way to try and do something um, about this. But I still think we haven't got far enough. And EJ and I have been talking about this for two or three years, and I think we've come to a bit of a, a halt at the moment, and we don't know where to go next with this idea and how we can perhaps encourage other journals to take on some of our ideas. And maybe um, that's something that might come out of our talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin, for uh, a positive talk about how journals really can make a difference. Um, our next speaker is Phil McGowan from the International Journal of Galliform Conservation. I hopefully you'll add to that. Shall I just stand here? Is that yeah. yeah. Um, Thank you very much, Joss and EJ, for putting this workshop together and inviting me to talk at it. Um, a number of the points that have, uh, that have already been made are points that have occurred to me over a number of years. So I'll try and be fairly brief, but draw together a number of issues. When this proposal was drawn up last year, I was the director of a, of a small but pretty diverse and widespread conservation organisation working with a particular group of birds called the galliforms, so pheasants, grouse, partridges. There's about 300 species occurring all around the world and a lot of our focus was in Asia. So over the 35 years that the organisation had been uh, in existence, we developed very, very strong networks in India and in China particularly. Now I'm working uh, at Newcastle University and so I've got a very, very different perspective now or I'm learning and gaining a new perspective on the whole publication business. And so some I can see much more easily now some of the problems and the pressures and almost the momentum that the juggernaut of publication builds up. A lot of the work that we carried out when I worked for the conservation organisation was in its broadest sense capacity building. And I think one of our huge successes over 20, 25 years was increasing the quality of field work. So sampling design and field protocols in India and China. Uh, in particular, also to some extent, Nepal and Thailand. But that is all encapsulated in an ideal world in publications and that is a, an area where there's still a huge amount of work to be done. It seems to me that there are two fundamental issues and I would split them out on a slightly different context but they pretty much fall into the two that Joyce mentioned. I would say there's the process and the mechanism, the mechanics of writing a paper. And secondly, there is the process involved in the, the developing and conceptualising the science that a paper wishes to communicate. With writing papers, there is a whole host of things that can be done to improve 
the acceptability to international journals of papers from a whole diversity of countries. Martin has mentioned um, paper writing workshops. We conducted one in Beijing that was partly funded by the British Council, partly funded by Beijing Normal University over a decade ago. And that did, as Martin has alluded with his workshops, that led to publications arising immediately from that workshop. But most importantly, some of the people who were, took part in that workshop have gone on to, they might have been early career, so had just attracted a lectureship in those times, or were just finishing their PhDs. They have now gone on either to secure lectureships, in the case of those who are doing PhDs, or are now mid-career and much more influential. And the experience, even if in some of the older individuals' cases, they don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of writing papers and the nuances for international journals, they know what is important and they know where to go for help. So writing workshops can be very, very valuable. The key thing that we found with all of our capacity building, not just writing papers, is the time lag. And I don't know how easily that fits either with an editorial life cycle, I think, apart from maybe the case where there's a full-time editor, a journal life cycle, lifespan, an editor's lifespan, may be fairly similar to a politician's. So they might look in fairly different timescales. We find that you actually need to be looking at somewhere between 10 and 15 years for some of these workshops, and mentoring is another very powerful way uh, for those really to have an impact in terms of numbers of high-quality publications coming through. Um, we have worked very closely with one of the IUCN specialist groups. There is a Galliform specialist group, 250-odd specialists around the world, and they have taken on board very much our mission. So there's a whole mentoring process that we also embraced, and paper writing was a very important part of that, but it also did include project design, um, Grouse and partridges are amongst the most studied birds on the planet, so it clearly makes sense to draw uh, on the expertise of people from northern countries when designing field projects for some of the most threatened species which occur, occur for the south. The second issue, obviously, is the scientific content, and that's been touched on. Um, Joyce particularly gave uh, some of the, 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 the issues that are outside the researcher's control. Um, my feeling here is that, uh, again, as Joyce mentioned, is a lot of these international journals, they prize novelty and generalizability above absolutely everything else. And that's very much from a topical or a conceptual sense. Certainly the work that we've done in China, I think back to the first time I went to China, which was not very long after um, the massacre in Tiananmen Square. And that's one generation, one human generation, and it is completely unrealistic to expect a substantial scientific uh, and development in that time. I say scientific development, we must remember that a lot of these countries have their own academic and intellectual traditions, which are occasionally sometimes quite different from that that Western journals prize. But nonetheless, they do see publishing in international journals as very important, but the, the ecological science will certainly take time for the approaches and the concepts to become, let alone the methods, to become firmly embedded in those countries. So again, I think we need to take a much longer view. I think there clearly is a great benefit to trying to find ways forward. Certainly scientifically, we need to broaden the constituencies that we're working within. 
my passion is, rather than science, is actually in conservation. And whilst a lot of the, the leading journals may have very generalizable methods about patterns and processes, a lot of conservation action does take place at a much lower, uh, much more local scale. And it's having that information that has been through a peer review and internationally accepted process that will make a difference to conservation. And finally, although I'm not qualified to talk on this, surely there is going to be a very strong economic case for the publishing houses to increase their, um, their market share. So the, the clearly, we all have a common interest if we identify the right timescales. So I think we do need to, my, my take home message is to be more strategic. There's quite a number of points to be mentioned by Martin and Joyce that clearly can fit into uh, building up our cap capacity and increasing our capability so that we will see a lot more publications. But just in, uh, as a couple of uh, throwaway comments, what about um, whether our page fees, can journals make publications free for um, for people from particular countries, authors from particular countries, and how is, how accessible, I don't know how accessible a lot of journals are for the sort of countries and the institutions that we talk about. As Joyce mentioned, they're not just, Brazil is not one country, China is not one country. There's certainly some institutions in China that have access to all of the journals that we would be considering, but there's a huge number that don't. So how exposed are they to the sort of scientific thinking that we're talking about? Thank you, Phil. That was very interesting and raised a number of really important points about um, the accessibility and scope of conservation journals. So hopefully to answer some of those, <laughs> the publisher's perspective. So, Liz. Thank you, Joss. Um, so thanks also to EJ and Joss for inviting me to talk. I know there are other publishers in this room, so um, I will try to speak very generically from the publisher perspective, but if there's anything I say that my colleagues in the industry think they could improve on, please feel free. Um, some of what I'm going to say is extremely generic. When I was thinking about the question around this topic, I began to think a little differently about it than perhaps I normally would. And one of the very first things I thought about was the difficulty that people sometimes have in pitching their work to the right journal. And so I started to have a look around at the aims and scope statements that some of the journals we publish in this subject area uh, make publicly available to every, everyone. Some of them are crystal clear about the kind of work they publish. Others of them are intellectual exercises in trying to understand what it is the editor really means. So I'm not entirely surprised that sometimes it can be a real challenge to pitch um, your work appropriately. So what I might suggest to all the editors in the room, of whom there are a number, is that they perhaps take a look at their aims and scope statements with a, a fresh eye. Something that I think also can help that is if publishers produce language, uh, local language information about the journals they publish. We're not going to do this in every single language there is, but we've certainly found it very useful. Um, for example, we have a Wiley China website where everything is in Mandarin. We've produced local language information about journals in Mandarin and also in Portuguese for some t subject areas. Um, just so that people can very clearly and quickly get an idea of what those particular journals are about and what kind of services and opportunities they might offer to authors. It shouldn't be difficult, basically, and, and I think we can make it much easier. Um, 
So Joyce raised the question of what publishers or editors and journals can do to help authors for whom English isn't necessarily a first language. It's quite a challenge for some of the journals that we've been talking about that are receiving hundreds or thousands of submissions a year to devote time to the kind of detailed service that Martin talked about. I think it's terrifically valuable when they can, but what the larger publishers have tended to do is look out for local language services that can provide support and assistance in developing the English of a manuscript. And we've validated those in terms of the quality of the service they provide so that you would be sure that it was worth putting your, your work with them. And secondly, that the charges they apply are appropriate to local circumstances. And I realize that doesn't make them accessible to everybody or accessible at all times, but that could be one potentially useful outlet. Something else that I think publishers could do or encourage editors and journals to do um, goes to another point that Joycey made about the, the challenges that people face in structuring and formatting their paper. We would rather that all researchers spent time developing the story and the science that they want to present rather than revising their references to the fifth format that they've tried for that particular paper. Frankly, I don't think there's any reason for there to be any more than one style of referencing for any journal in the world or across the board. And I think actually we, if we put some concerted effort into that over a short time change, we can make something really quite different. Now, the references is a really obvious, easy place to go. But anything that we can do that allows you to develop the content of your paper rather than the structure of your paper, I would assume, has got to be of some assistance. So workshops have also come up several times. We've got quite a lot of experience of running workshops in China and to a less extent in South America, mostly in Brazil. I think they're hugely valuable. The ones that we organize tend to have a combination of expert scientists coming in to talk about the writing and construction of papers and a bit of talk from the publishing side as well about what to expect from the whole process and what may happen at various stages of, of publishing your work. Um, they are very valuable, but they are expensive and time-consuming, not just from the perspective of those coming in to give you the benefit of all of their expertise, but also for people who want to attend those workshops. It takes up a lot of time, and it can take up you know, hard-earned travel resources. So we've begun to experiment with online workshops instead, which take slides um, from leading scientists in their disciplines and from some publishing staff as well, with voiced presentations over the top, and we found that that's increased participation in those workshops massively. And we can also see quite clearly where it is that people really want to spend their time and focus their energies when, do, when spending time on these kinds of workshops. And those typically will have at least one live session um, online at some point so that people are able to view and listen to the presentations ahead of time, then come prepared with questions and the speakers will be there. And the whole thing's recorded, available you know, for a long time after the session as well. Those have been terrifically valuable and we've had really strong feedback on that. And that's another thing that I think is important, feedback. There is no point us coming here and saying to you all of these wonderful things we're doing if you think they've got no value whatsoever. So we asked a number of attendees of workshops that we've run and other people in the countries from which they came about what they thought were the top most important things they wanted to hear about in online or in-person workshops. The very first one was tips for writing papers, basically anything to do with how to sell your work in the most effective way. Dealing with peer review was the second most common answer. What to expect, how do I respond to reviewers? Um, how, do I, how am I supposed to feel when I see all this criticism of my work and respond to it in the most calm and effective manner? How to write a good cover letter. 
Now, journals variably look upon covering letters or not, and I think it's quite useful for a journal to say whether they would like to see a cover letter. But if they do, what kind of information should you be putting in it? And how do you make appropriate reviewer recommendations? Another one is how to promote your work once published. What channels can I use to really make sure everyone knows this is there and the significance of the work that you've been able to get out there? And the fifth one was picking the right journal and advice in pitching work appropriately. And finally, I'll move on to some cross-publisher initiatives to allow access to people in developing countries and some other services as well. So these are independent organizations, um, and they're, some of the programs are supported by publishers. They're an, under an umbrella called Research for Life, um, and there are WHO programs included, um, agriculture programs, and so on. And they provide access to subscription content journals in developing countries with GDP below a certain level. So it's primarily within Africa, bits of Asia, bits of South America. Um, they also provide access at more appropriate rates in, in other countries um, that are more developing as well. But one of the most important things that one of those services provide, this is INASP, um, that's particularly relevant today, is a program called AuthorAid which is authoraid.org, and it's a whole suite of online resources designed to help people get published. And right now, I looked at it yesterday just before coming here again, there's a kind of an anatomy of a paper broken down with comments all over it by someone. You could sign up to be both a mentor or a mentee within that program, and it gets really terrific feedback from people who use it. So it's well worth a look. It's a very valuable resource. Thank you very, very much, Liz, for some really practical points about moving forwards. Um, so now this is the point we'd like to open it up to the floor. Um, Erica, are you at, is at the back with a, a microphone in case you have questions, and she will come over to you. Is that? It does move. So um, does anyone have any questions for the panel? Let's start us off. Okay, Andre. Works now? Good. Just following on from your last point about those um, institutions that provide access to the journals, if a researcher in a country hasn't got access to a journal, who do they go to to ask? Who do they talk to in their institution so that they can, they can get access via those programs? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure, but I will try to find out before I have to leave this meeting today, and I will let Joss and EJ know so that if that's the case, people know who to get hold of. Thanks. Thanks. Question, yeah? feels overkill talking to this to ask a question to Josie who's sat here. Um, so you've, you made the interesting point that um, the government of Brazil, for example, isn't incentivizing publishing in high impact global international journals, nature science, etc. But was, you know, really, uh, perhaps you were suggesting over incentivizing publishing in regional um, applied publications through the medium of, of Portuguese. Is that necessarily a bad thing for applied ecology in, a, in, in Brazil? Because if we think about actual real impact, other than sort of academic impact and polishing our own egos, really, isn't the applied impact going to come? Um, um, Jean-Paul Metzinger, I think, said yesterday, um, talked about his most influential publication on the, um, the Brazilian Forest Code came from something he wrote in Portuguese in a very regional journal. I just wondered on your perspective of that. Yeah, I think it's a, a very uh, important point. Uh, uh, I think that the, for uh, answering that, I think that we need to think that 
Like Brazilian number of publication has increased a lot from the 23, 23rd position to 13th position. So we are really improving in terms of number of publications. And why this happened? Mostly because, in part, because uh, some Brazilian journals have entered in the international database. But as I, I told before, this does not reflect the number of citations. So if you think of the, in terms of uh, the impact of research, it is still low. So I think regionally, it's really important if you, if you think about that. But in general terms, in terms of impact, it's not so good. So I think that we need to, to one point that I'd like to make, and I think we need to discuss, is how uh, the international society, let's say, uh, could help the national journals to improve. I think that there are like two fronts, working in the international standard and also in the national standard. And like uh, selecting the best journals in the country and how the publishers uh, could help those journals to improve. I think this is a valid point. Great. Do either of you have something to add? Because you both mentioned um, partnerships between international and national journals. Do you, to some extent? Yeah. I think there's room for, to answer Julia's question, I mean, I, th I think there's, there's, there's room for both. I mean, there's, I, I don't see any problem with there being um, uh, Brazilian researchers, shall we say, publishing some of their research in um, a, a Brazilian journal and some of their research in an international journal. It depends what the audience is for that particular research, and I just think it's I just think it's good that both exist. And um, and I think, to some extent, as well, some of the Brazilian journals are already available online, and and as things change, they all will be. And to some extent, I think it's less and less important where we actually publish our work. In fact, because I think a lot of people now are perfectly happy if they the article, the PDF of the article they want to read, if they can get it on their phone or their tablet or their computer, they're not so concerned whether it was published in Nature or Oryx or Conservação Natural in Brazil. You know, they want to get it, they want to see it. They're not, we're not so much in the habit these days of going to the library and checking out which journals have come in over the last few months. We just want to get the articles delivered to our phone. You know, so I think where something is published is less and less important all the time because we can pick it up whether it's a Brazilian journal or an international journal. So I think we'll see this, I think, over the next few years, I think it's happening already, we'll see this divide disappearing. Um, I think people are, and I think that's driven to some extent by the open access journals such as PLOS One. Um, everybody wants journals to be open access and they want to get everything delivered to their phone. You know, I mean, that's what everybody wants. And, I th and, and things are moving in that direction, but not completely. I'll just make one, one comment from experience in China is that um, there is a journal, and I forget its name, it's a Frontiers journal, um, that publishes a selection of what they perceive to be leading papers that have been published in Chinese, and they're translated and published in English. Now, what I don't know from a, um, either from a science or a, a sort of publishing economics point of view is how that works. I don't know if it has been accepted in Chinese zoology or Actosinica, whatever it might be, whether that is automatically deemed as of sufficient standard for this English language journal. But there are mechanisms where some papers are published 
in both in Chinese originally, and then it's deemed that they should be made more internationally available. So there are mechanisms for doing that. Very few and far between, but... There was a question here, and then... And then. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Vandik Batistas. I'm from Brazil, University of Alagoas, uh, Federal Alagoas. Uh, I have been publish publishing in some international review uh, journals, but uh, mainly in national re uh, journals. And uh, I observe that the behavior in general of the students is to respond, and uh, of the researchers, to respond to main national uh, incentives. They are solved local problems or regional problems, and uh, those kind of uh, problems are not uh, of general interest. When you send, I've, li I've lived during the 16 years in Manaus, in Amazonas, and, I, and uh, sometimes the way of thinking is that uh, Amazon is the best of the world because the nature is there and everything that we write is important. It's not real. A lot of times when I, we wrote the, the papers, it returns, oh, it's good for a re regional journal. There is an important regional <laughs> journal there. But how to solve this, this kind of problem? I think that uh, we, we can uh, do some kind of selection of papers that uh, have a general uh, view and others that are of local interest. But uh, uh, which kind of, uh, of uh, uh, support can be done uh, related to the way of thinking. Uh, when we are talking about writing in English, it's not write in another language, it's writing, thinking differently. We are letting people, in Brazil, uh, I think that uh, the problem is being solved, it, it demands time, but other countries of Latin America, including Mex Mexico, uh, although very close to the United States, uh, have the same problem, uh, letting people are very round and don't go straight to the point. We like, we are incentivized to produce very heavy uh, dissertations, papers, and not to think on publishing. But now I think that is changing. But the way to do that, uh, it's important to, to be sad. To be sad, to be repeated, because people who is repeating this, those kind of things there uh, generally are rejected as uh, not nationalist or something like that. Uh, I think that in Brazil it's beginning, but I think that I don't know if there is uh, any other person that's not from Brazil, but from South America. One, yeah, it's very hard to find people from other places because I know a lot of people and do a lot of good, good research from Colombia, from Peru, from Argentina. There's a very important country doing things like that and from Mexico. But they have the same problem. But uh, they have a more important problem is that uh, how to dialogue with European, mainly European and United States, uh, way of thinking. How to do that? The workshops are very important. I, I agree totally. I think that uh, this kind of initiative, I, I would like to know because I want to, 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 to tell to a lot of people who have the, the enough discipline to follow the structures. But it is, uh, uh, I think that there is another step how to promote uh, regional, and to insert, insert uh, this knowledge in the general world knowledge. Just to finish, uh, we, me and uh, uh, Ana Malhado, another researcher of Brazil, we have produced now an article that was uh, accepted by Biotropica, specifically talking about uh, the research 
that has been developing in Amazon during the last 20 years. And we, 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 we got this kind of pattern. Uh, the, the amount of research produced in Brazil has grown more than general mean in Latin America. And uh, the, the, the first uh, author generally uh, continues to be a foreign person. But it's in, the, the percentage is increasing. However, the, the impact level of this, those articles uh, has not changed. When it's written by a foreign person, uh, it reaches a higher level. It, it, it's increasing, but not in the same speed as production. I, I, I would like just to think what has happened is not a... Uh, maybe the problem is in the mind. I, I, I will think here... I, 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 uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> too long. But uh, when you have in your mind uh, the, ne the need to solve local problems, regional problems, generally you don't think to, to talk on theoret theoretically in the world uh, point of view. And I think that's the main point that might, might be stressed on those workshops, on, on partnerships that's very important to be developed. Sorry for too delay. Thank you very much. Um, anyone would like to add to that or comment on that? Just because you have comments about the other countries in South America, I just found, found out a, a, a data that I thought it was important. Like in Brazil, the level of international collaboration, what I think is really, really important to build this uh, knowledge and this uh, kind of thing that we are talking about. In Brazil, it's like 35%, and along the years, it has not changed much. And in terms of the other countries like Colombia and Argentina, the number of international collaborations are increasing. I have uh, seen this in a 2013 paper, and I think this is very important to contextualize South America as a whole. Can I, can I just add one, one thing to what you said? Um, so for quite a long time now, publishers have recognized the explosion of research that was happening in China and devoted an awful lot of time and effort to going out there and trying to understand what the needs of authors were in China and how they might be different to the more Western European and, and US cultures. I think, no, not I think, um, the same is now being recognized of South America broadly, that there's an explosion in the amount of research being conducted, that it's very good quality research, and it's the kind of research that we would like to see appearing in our journals. And I mentioned earlier, it's very important that we don't just parachute in, do our workshops, and leave again and expect everything to change or whatever. I think there's a, a, a massive change in focus for publishers also onto service to authors. And we're not going to provide an effective service and, until we listen to what it is that you need. So I don't think that the, the sort of cultural shift that you described has to come solely from the researchers. I think there has to be a meeting in the middle somewhere. And we're nowhere near it yet, but I think you will see a number of changes over the next few years that, that bring those two sides much more closely together. There's a question. Chris. Thank <laughs> you. 
Um, I was just wondering what would be the possibility of doing seminars on most online seminars. I've I've only once had the opportunity to take a, a seminar on something or some sort of um, method of some sort that um, was online and uh, it was done by a guy in Canada and a guy in New Zealand and they kind of also met halfway in terms of time and to be honest it felt like almost as good as if I was there and uh, in that case was free I'm not sure who was paying for it uh, because it was a really interesting um, uh, system in which you could just ask questions so there would be someone immediately answering all these questions and um, and I think that would definitely help a lot because as we, you were both saying um, the writing is quite important not only to get published in a good journal but also to get people to understand what you write what you writing about and I think that's part of the problems that uh, we have in, in Brazil with perhaps the low impact journals that people just struggle to read and get to the end and then, and then you eventually don't cite the, the paper. Um, I just said you were looking yeah. at me. And <laughs> no, that's right. I, um, I, I absolutely think publishers should be doing more of this and that the, the example I know best is one that we did in microbiology, particularly focused on China, um, and it worked extremely well. The costs are next to nothing. Um, all you need is to be able to coordinate people's time, to get the slides in ahead of time, make sure they can all be there for a two-hour slot for the discussion and the questions and answers interactions. Um, and I absolutely think we should be looking at doing that in a number of other subject areas. It's important to recognize that if, if we do it as Wiley, you are going to get a session in there about the Wiley journals in ecology and evolution. So that's probably the cost from your perspective. Um, but other than that, I think it, it's something that we could do really quite easily. It just takes a bit of effort. Um, at the back, yeah, do you want to come? That's why you're making, I think that's one of the, the key points is widening participation um, from this, the really good workshops of 16 people up to the thousands we need to get to. Um, just a few comments, uh, I think uh, we don't have to worry about the balance between local and international publication because, as was already said here, local focus is default position of, of almost all developing and emerging countries. So what is really needed is to encourage people to shift from that position, at least partly, not only very rarely you have a very good research which is uh, sort of put unnecessarily into local journals. It's more, it's starting from the design of the research from asking the questions and people have to stop thinking about Amazon or about Malaysia and think about the global science and, and then uh, design research like that. And for that, I think workshops are a very good way to do it, but uh, even more important, you need to have some role models in these uh, countries. So some of the, there is always somebody, so, so these people should share more what, what they are doing and, and how they achieve that. And they should be put, uh, put on the editorial boards of journals because then really people see, okay, somebody is here from my country and either can contact that person or, or at least is encouraged that it can be done because I think the main problem is that uh, people have lots of misconceptions, um, especially in more remote countries like in Africa, for instance. First, they think that the whole international publishing is a one great conspiracy where basically everybody knows everybody, everybody goes to meetings, and uh, they have no chance. So, so that's the first thing. Second, sort of a little bit opposite um, uh, is that all the editorial boards are reviewers are infallible and know everything. And so they get extremely confused when they get con uh, contradictory reviews on their paper. 
they say, you know, how is it possible that these <clears throat> scientists have different opinions? Or it's extremely discouraging when they get a positive review and are still rejected. Because again, one conception is that they, they don't think that these, they don't understand that these journals are selecting the best papers. They think that they are selecting, they are sorting papers from correct, between correct and wrong papers. And if their paper is technically correct, it's like plus one basically. That's their idea of, you know, nature science, everything works like plus one. That's, that's, that's a very widespread idea. So all these misconceptions lead to people uh, being afraid even to, to design their research as they should, and then, and then they, they submit it. And I think one way how to break this trend is um, not to cater to local sensitivities and, and local, um, uh, local sort of culture, but basically just try to sort of explain the international standards. Like, like for instance, for Bi Biotropica, the best thing they ever did was to cancel uh, Spanish and Portuguese abstracts for the papers. Because until then, students thought that Spanish and Portuguese are actually important languages. That's absolutely untrue for science. They, they basically, you know, that's, that's like Swahili. And, and that they, they didn't realize that, but, but now they know that, and they, they are sort of forced to that. So, um, so I think there is surpri surprisingly sometimes little understanding how things which we consider for granted, uh, how they work. And, um, uh, I, my experience, among other things, is from a Tropical Biology Association. They are doing publishing workshops in Africa, which is especially problematic in terms of getting uh, engaged. And um, that's why I think that workshops are important, but once workshops is finished, then you need some follow-up. And I think the local leaders in science should, are really important in that regard. Thank you. Um, I think that's great, and I think I definitely agree that we need to increase not just only authors' contribution from these countries, but the contribution of reviewers and editors too. Um, so, and if there's no burning desire to comment here, I'll go over to the, the question there. You think you want to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid they disagree, but. <laughs> Um, so I'd like to hear, especially from the editors and what everybody else feels, I think it's really important to have an abstract besides the English one, but a native language of some sort that could be Spanish, Portuguese, Czech, Swahili, Hindu, whatever. But I think that's important because it was, uh, as was pointed out, many countries and many institutions won't have access to much of the publication and students have difficulty with English anyway, although I'm not saying that people should publish in that language, but just a second abstract, like conservation biology or biology conservation. I always got confused. So um, my point is that would increase the readership and the understanding of the paper because you're reaching out to other students especially that wouldn't have the proficiency of understanding the English. So I think you are um, broadening your audience. So I'd like to hear the editors and the other authors, what they think about this double language abstract. Thank you. Um, do you want to add, re uh, reply yes, first? I just had a response, but maybe somebody else can the, add a, the, the, need the microphone. Okay. Yeah. Anyone want to? Um, we've thought about doing dual abstracts, um, and we haven't for the simple reason we don't have the resources. Um, it's not. Um, but I, th I, I was interested to hear this point of view that it was good to do away with. Um, Foreign abstracts is fine by me, I guess, at the moment, because we don't do them. So it, <laughs> that's, that's a point of view that works well for me. But I think my gut reaction would be that it, it would be a good thing to do um, 
other abstracts, probably not in the published version of the journal, but just publish them online, in which case you could do as many languages as you could find people to do the translation, and it wouldn't take up space actually on paper. So I don't see any problem with that at all, really, except I don't personally have the resources with the journal I edit to actually do it, although it's something that we've, we've thought about for quite a while. Do you want to add to that right at the back? Yeah. And then... Uh, I, I have some points. This, uh, I, did, I disagree with this uh, multi-language abstracts in the published version of the journal. It's not required at all. If you find some interesting article which has some relevance to the country, say for example for the India, there are some work, the pollinated decline in the world, something like that. The uh, one leading scientist in India, India can translate that in Indian for the Indian lemon. You know, they can write in the newspaper article. They can develop a small story in an Indian journal. You know, that can be more more uh, popularly seen by these students and researchers, etc. That's one point. Then second point, uh, this uh, uh, English is not a native language, since I, I'm an Indian. I'm also facing some issues like that when I submit that to the international journals. So the uh, story is good, but uh, you need to uh, consult a native English-speaking person. Usually I send that to my friends, but they'll take two, three months, so I can't, I can't pay for that uh, service. Uh, one good thing, I find out with the Biotropic IAs, they are charging like nominal charge, like $25, okay? Uh, they just uh, clean the English part of uh, the journal. I think most of the journal are making a lot of um, revenue of, uh, by publishing the articles. So I think they can come with a nominal fee for this, uh, this uh, for the emerging economies. So, so they can, they don't have to worry about, you know, my English is a little weak in that. So. Uh, it can go to this, uh, not a full-time copy editor, but somebody who can uh, work on that uh, English. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it's interesting, there's been a couple of people in the audience that don't seem, so, don't, don't seem to prioritize the importance of, um, don't seem to consider getting um, uh, other language abstracts that highly. but. Um, certainly from where I work in Madagascar, I just think it's, it would be incredibly helpful if papers were more often had abstracts in French, for example, which academics can all read, and students. Um, and what I don't understand is why journals don't make it easier for, so for example, conservation biology obviously is not represented here, but they publish all abstracts just in Spanish. And if you say, well, can we write one in French instead, because this is about Madagascar, that's just not an option. It has to be in Spanish, and that's all. And I think, as Martin says, now with the online, this isn't about getting them in the paper copy, it's about online. It would be great if journals kind of almost as a matter of course made a space where authors can upload you know it, their own written you know it's it's written by them and okay maybe i guess the, the issue is quality control from the perspective of the journals because the editors can't read those languages but had some, surely that can be overcome somehow where ed, where authors themselves upload it in whichever languages are relevant to the country where the work is relevant because it does seem strange that we have it always in english because many people can read english but it's an effort and they need to know if it's worth them putting the effort in whereas if they've read the abstract in their own language then they know whether to sit there with the dictionary for a few hours yeah, very good points. Um, I think I, the Spanish speakers tell me that the abstracts of conservation biology are often fairly incomprehensible in Spanish. <laughs> um, yeah. A bit 
But going back to one of the things that I can't remember who was talking about, um, about uh, the fact that uh, authors often don't know um, what's going on uh, when the paper goes to, to review. And um, one thing that I've been doing uh, lately is to um, send often to Brazilian reviewers. Um, and this was mostly because I was reading actually about the, the female, well, the male bias in publication. And uh, I can't remember which journal was saying, I think maybe Nature saying that maybe um, editors should send more papers to women because then it would um, perhaps change the whole system and then, and then get more women to be editors and the whole thing. And then I thought that there was uh, something that we could do. And, uh, and I think perhaps that's something that journals can perhaps suggest to their editors that um, they should submit, they, sh they should ask reviewers from different countries and not just in the US and the UK to, to review it. Um, yeah, you want to? Kind of add to that, speaking as both a non-native speaker and an associate editor, one of my frustrations sometimes is that reviewers we have English as one language and not speak any English actually have a very low tolerance of other languages and are just not giving the science the attention that it sometimes should do because they just say you know it's not entirely how the English should be in my point of view where sometimes that's just the next phase where we can actually work, can work on but just so from a journal perspective and kind of an awareness towards your reviewers from, hey, we like to publish work from other countries. Yes, it has to be good English. But if you see a paper from other countries, can you just have a good look at it, even when you think that, you know, it might not the best read on the moment, but it might be. And that's a kind of awareness you can, from your journal, you can say to your reviewers, and talking from an associate editor part of you, it's pretty frustrating if you see that kind of reviews and think, you actually didn't look at it. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I guess you must have this a lot, trying to get people to focus on the science and not the, uh, not the English. I'd just like to add a few things to picking up on a few points that have been said. Um, one was about um, people struggling with the English language. Um, and that is a problem, but I don't think, in my experience, the actual English is not the main problem that um, a lot of people, for me anyway, as the editor, the main problem is people learning how to tell the story properly. That I think, I can, it's much easier for me when I'm, or for my office, when we are copy editing a manuscript that we've accepted, it's much easier for us to cope with um, uh, in less than perfect English than it is to cope with an article where the story has not been told very well. If the story's not been told very well, then that's a really difficult manuscript for us to edit. But if it's just a question of the language, then it's not nearly, the problem is not nearly so great. We can get through that manuscript and prepare it for publication much more quickly. So learning how to tell the story is, I think, one of the most important things. And it's something we're thinking a little bit about at the moment and how over and above our workshops um, we could do um, something about that. I like Julia's idea that we could, um, uh, there's no reason why we couldn't publish abstracts in many different languages, perhaps just simply translated by the authors. And I have the final versions of the abstracts translated by the authors and, and just have a note to say that it was translated by the authors and, and leave, it to, leave it up to that. I think that would, um, I think that would be fine. Um, 
I spoke, when I spoke earlier, I said that I felt perhaps journals have some wider responsibilities um, other than those that they think are traditionally their responsibility. And the gentleman who just spoke mentioned the people who review the articles. And I think one thing that journals can do perhaps more of, and I'm not too sure how other journals do it, but I think one thing that journals can do more of is to think a lot about building the capacity of people to not just to write, but to review articles and to go out of their way. And it doesn't take much work at all to bring in people from around the world to review the articles being published in that regional or national or international journal. It's something we work quite a lot on, and I don't know how much other journals do it, but sometimes if I've got an article that we've received from India, sometimes all of the reviewers on that article may actually be from India. Depends on the context. Sometimes there may be one from outside India and somewhat, sometimes uh, from somewhere from somebody within India. But it's something we work quite hard at, and I think maybe there might be a bit of room for some other journals um, to think a little bit more, or perhaps a lot more, about doing that. And because especially the... Uh, um, well, a gentleman from India spoke. I think um, an Indian reviewing an article that's been written by somebody in India is more likely perhaps to be um, less worried about the quality of the English and be more interested in, oh, well, this is actually taking place in India. What do I know about this and is this good science? And won't be put off so much by um, the Indian English if that's what it's been written in. I think um, I would just echo Martin's point that, from our experience, again, it is, it's the telling of the story. And when I look back and when we first started working in the mid-90s, when we really started paying um, attention to try and build capacity in China, the description of the methods might be three lines. The description of the results might be a paragraph. And there was nothing in there that allowed you to actually understand what they had done. A transect was carried out. Um, and the population density was 4.6 plus or minus 2.1. That was it. And it is, and the, the, but there are different reasons for that. Partly, there's the cultural issue that if somebody does go out and say something, particularly if it was your senior, you wouldn't argue with them. They have page charges, so they want the introduction and particularly the discussion to take up as much as possible. So working within the Chinese academic um, system really constrained in their minds what they would, how much space they would devote to methods and results. So over time, and because we have invested through, not only through paper writing workshops, but whole field work and methodology workshops, we've really teased out over time the way that they've conducted their methods and the way that they present their results. At the same time, they've always been so hungry you know, in the 90s when it was much more difficult for them to get access to papers, they were so hungry for papers that were very, very full in their description of methods and results because they really did want to find out what um, was done internationally. So there was that sort of conceptual mismatch that they had between what they wanted to find out and what they thought other people wanted to read. A lot of work with a similar groups of people, a similar research laboratories, has in my mind, paid dividends because a number of the people that we would have worked with in the, in the mid-90s and early 2000s have now gone off and have got academic positions in other universities. So a lot of these lessons can be learned. But there's a whole host of different reasons why the stories are not told in the way that we 
writing from a Western um, publication perspective would deem it necessary. Sometimes it's a very simple problem to solve, uh, and other times it's much more deeply embedded in, in the way that the, their intellectual culture has, has um, developed. But from my experience, I would definitely agree with Martin that the problem is, or the problem, the difference is the telling of the story. I have had from, maybe we work with a group of people that are much more sympathetic as reviewers and editors and mentors, that we've not had that problem with, um, with English as such. And just one final comment is that um, I was at a, a workshop on, on um, training at, at fairly recently and was told that, I don't know if this is true, but with, um, with proof or copy editors, they go through, they read things in three, three stages. The first is to see if there's something interesting in there and if it makes sense. The second time you read it is to see if it's well structured. It's only the third time that you actually go through and change the English. So it really should be the last of those three steps that um, reviewers should be concerned with. It should be, is the science in there that makes sense and is interesting? And is there a reasonable structure or does the structure need to be changed? Thank you very much. Um, I think we've uh, got lots of questions and not much time. <laughs> so any, has anyone got a quick question, someone that hasn't asked one before? Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually a response to something that came up earlier about um, the um, international reviewers and making sure that that's really diverse. Um, I work at F1000 Research, which is a journal we're exhibiting downstairs, so I actually had to tag team this session with my colleague. Um, we do have a solution for the diversity issue, and uh, as well as some of the other things, but we, uh, we let authors suggest uh, reviewers, so it's not just us or the editors choosing them, we can let people suggest their own, so they often will choose people that we might have never heard of and then we'll look into it and check if they're suitable to review the paper. Um, but the, the reviewer names are also published with each paper and their affiliations and their comments, so you can actually see who the reviewers were and you can get a, a sense of, oh, this paper has been reviewed by someone in the same country or someone from the US, and it gives you an overview of exactly what happened. So we try to bring in as many different countries as possible. Thank you. Um, did you have a very quick comment at the back? And then I think we need to, um, I'll hand over to EJ for a quick summing up because she's been rapidly typing away there. And you may have noticed there's a sign-in sheet going around. Please sign your name on that and your email so that we can contact you with basically the summary of the workshop that's been typed. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to follow on from the, uh, the points about helping authors get their work, work published. Uh, I completely agree that um, pu publishers should be helping authors from developing countries as much as possible to get their work published. Um, I'm the in-house editor for BMC Ecology and Biomed Central, which is the publisher that we publish with, um, they have an author academy, which is freely available online to, uh, to any researcher wanting to, to look at it and it outlines a step-by-step -step guide to um, uh, best practice in, in outlining a scientific paper to, to a standard that we would usually expect. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that there are publishers such as BMC Ecology out there who address many of these issues, um, such as the scope issue that we were talking about earlier. Um, we have a broad scope, it's very simple, it's anything in ecology. Um, we don't discriminate on, the, on the, the grounds of interest levels, so 
um, as long as your, your work is sound and it's a useful advance in the field, then we'll consider it. Um, and we're an open access publisher, which means that anyone from any country can read the research. And if you're from a developing country, then we routinely waive the, uh, the usual article processing charge. And I think that's, that's true of many open access publishers as well. Um, so we're really passionate about getting developing people from developing countries getting their research published. So yeah, it's just worth noting that there are many publishers that are doing really useful things for developing countries. So uh, yeah, if anyone has any questions about or would like to discuss that, then grab me afterwards. Okay, thank you. So, uh, EJ. <laughs> so I'm not going to do a detailed summary of everything that's been said, because I'm sure you can all remember what's been said. But <laughs> I'm just going to uh, give you a brief, brief thing about what the next steps are going to be. So we're going to produce just a summary of what's been mentioned so far, and anyone who writes their name on the sign-up sheet will receive that summary. Um, at the Journal of Applied Ecology, we're going to produce an editorial that... Um, lays out some of the key points that you've made and some of the things that we'll be doing to try and address those points. And I think Martin will probably be doing the same in Oryx. Yeah. Um, and then we're very keen to engage with publishers uh, more broadly about this. Um, so with Liz and with the other publishers so that we can have something a bit more consistent. That And I think actually a lot of these issues don't just uh, affect developing country authors, they affect young authors. Um, from everywhere, you know, everyone needs to know how to review and everyone needs to know how to structure a paper, how to tell a story correctly. So I think these are things that are useful to the research community in general. So I'd just like to finish by thanking you all for coming and for contributing to what I think has been a really useful debate. Thanks. I'd just like to add to that to say thank you very much for, for going sunshine over lunch and coming here. And thanks very much to the four panel members as well who are absolutely really great. Thanks for listening to the Journal of Applied Ecology podcast, where we put applied ecology into practice.